Welcome to the Gregory Diggout Podcast. The goodness of God is best described as the generosity of God. I think that what marks God's life, what marks God's character more than anything is his outrageous generosity. You don't have to go very far in the Bible to discover how generous God is. And we look at Romans chapter eight, verse thirty two. If we just if we just go back to that verse where we where we started with or ended with last time, it says he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. When he delivered him over, he handed him over. He handed Jesus over to the earth. He handed Jesus over to the devil. He handed Jesus over to the Romans. He handed Jesus over to the sinners. He handed Jesus over to this world. He handed him over freely. He didn't spare his son. He didn't give an animal. He didn't give uh, some 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 inferior person. He didn't give an angel to die for our sins. He gave himself. And if he did not spare his own son, he asks Paul asks this rhetorical question, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Now, when it says all things, do you think that includes your salvation? Do you think it includes healing? Do you think it includes wisdom? How about peace? Do you think it includes peace? How about joy? You think it includes joy? How about health? Do you think it includes health? So in other words, if he didn't spare his son, if he if he gave us his son, why wouldn't he give us freely all things? In fact, he says freely with him, he gives us all things. So with him, when you receive Jesus, you got more than you bargained for. When you receive Jesus, you received him freely and all things that you need. And so all things, if you research what that word means, all things is translated in any language as all things. So there is, in other words, whatever you need today, Jesus, God didn't withhold Jesus from you. So why would he withhold the money that you need or the healing that you need or the idea that you need or the wisdom that you need or if you're in business, the clients that you need or if you're in pain, the health and healing that you need or if you're uh, if you're alone, the friends that you need like God will supply all your need. And how does he do it? He does it freely. He gives it freely. You can't earn it. You can't deserve it. This verse is truly a picture of the generosity of God. And where I want to go with this is I want you to see that it's the generosity of God that is the greatest instrument. It's the greatest weapon in spiritual warfare. In other words, people talk about spiritual warfare in all these different ways. But when it boils down to what spiritual warfare really is, is spiritual warfare is belief systems and mindsets and thoughts that accuse you that thoughts that condemn you, thoughts that attack you, thoughts that tell you that God will stop loving you or God will stop doing you good or that you're not right with God or you really you really blew it this time and and you ought to be condemned. And he says, oh, no, look. So the generosity of God is described so vividly here in this verse, Romans eight thirty two. He didn't spare his own son, but delivered him, delivered him up for us all. How shall he not also with him freely give us all things? Can we all agree? That's pretty much proof of how generous God is. But then what does that lead to? 
it leads to the very next verse, which is a verse of spiritual warfare when he says, so who will bring a charge against God's elect? In other words, now you're going to you're going to have somebody, some voice is going to bring a charge against you. The devil comes to accuse. The Bible says that um, in Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, he said the accuser accuses us day and night, day and night. The devil is trying to accuse you. He's trying to condemn you. He's trying to shame you. He's telling you that you're not good enough. You haven't done enough. You haven't prayed enough. You're not holy enough. You haven't done this enough. You haven't been this enough. You're not enough. You're not enough. You're not enough. And if you go back to Romans 832, it's the generosity of God that gives you the ammunition that you need to fight these thoughts. So when he says in verse 33, who will bring a charge against God's elect since now you know how generous he is when the devil comes and says, God's not going to give it to you. You're, God, you're not worthy of it. You haven't done enough to get it. This is what you need to say. You would say, no, who's going to bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. I'm justified by faith. God has justified me. I don't have to prove anything. I don't have to do anything more. I don't have to earn it. He's generous. He's outrageously generous. And I'm going to use that as a weapon of spiritual warfare against the accused who comes to tell me I'm not enough. Verse 34, who's the one who condemns? Who's the one who condemns? See, this is spiritual warfare. Who's trying to condemn you? The devil is trying to condemn you. He's trying to tell you you haven't done enough. You haven't prayed enough or you sinned. And look at how you failed and look at how you blew it. And God is saying he's so God is saying, I'm so generous. I gave you my son. I'll give you everything. So don't listen to the lies of the devil that are trying to condemn you. It is Christ Jesus who died. Yes, who rather who was raised from the dead and who also intercedes for us. That doesn't mean he's praying praying for us. Jesus doesn't need to pray for you any longer. What he did on the cross is his intercession. It says he ever lives in Hebrews seven. But we just stay on this in this passage for a moment. He ever lives to make intercession for us. What does that mean? The word intercession means he stands in the gap. And where is he seated? He's seated at the right hand of God. So Jesus is interceding for you by sitting at the right hand of God so that you have access to the father through Jesus all the time, any day, any hour, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 and a quarter days a year. You have access to the father and you can go directly to him through what Jesus did on the cross. So Jesus is seated at the right hand of the father and you now we now are seated with him and we can go to the father anytime. Therefore, he's saying we can't be condemned no matter who condemns us. We are not condemned because Jesus sits at the right hand of the father on your behalf and seats you with him so that you are always cleansed. You're always washed. You're forever washed once and you never have to be washed again of your sin. You never have to be forgiven again of your sin. You never have to do anything. You never have to ask for it. You never have to try to get it or earn it or deserve it. None, none of that is ever, ever, ever again necessary for you to be forgiven. G, uh, John was talking to sinners when he said, if you confess your sins, God doesn't need us to confess our sins in order to be forgiven. In fact, it and and yet you say people say, well, you got to preach more. I was uh, I met with somebody recently. They said, you know, don't you got to preach? 
sin. Don't you got to preach about sin to get somebody to realize they're a sinner? Well, how did what did Jesus preach? What did Jesus do? The Bible says Jesus got into Peter's boat. I talked about this last week or a couple weeks ago. Jesus got into Peter's boat. They went to the deep and Jesus said, let down your net. And what happened? Jesus filled Peter's boat with so many fish that he couldn't even fit them all in his boat. And so they got their partners to get their boat and they couldn't fit them all in either boats. And both of the boats began to sink with the generosity of God. And and when Peter saw when he saw the generosity of God, I think this is in um, Luke five, verse eight, when he saw the generosity of God, he fell to his knees and said, depart from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. Wait an hour now, Jesus wasn't Jesus didn't preach about sin. Like people accuse me of not doing enough of. People should have accused Jesus. You didn't preach about sin, but look at the result he got. Peter repented of sin that Jesus didn't even preach about. So really, our goal should be to get people at the feet of Jesus. The goal shouldn't be, well, you better make sure, pastor, you preach this and you pre- I've had people leave the church and say you don't preach repentance enough. But I preach repentance more than anybody that I know, because repentance is to change the mind. Repentance is to change your mind. I mean, where'd you hear about fasting from wrong thinking? That's repentance. It's repenting of a wrong way of thinking. It's a repenting of a unbelief. It's repenting of of a belief about God that isn't correct. The goal is to get people to fall at Jesus feet. And Jesus reached his goal without even trying to tell Peter how wrong he was and what a sinner he was. Jesus demonstrated his goodness in Peter's life and so much goodness, outrageous generosity. And it brought Peter to his knees. What's the goal? The goal is not make sure you preach everything correctly. Make sure you tell everything, everybody, everything about God, how holy he is, how you know how they're a sinner. Really? Because the goal is not make sure you have said everything correctly. The goal is to get people to their knees. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. And if the goodness of God If God used his goodness to get Peter to his knees, why would he use something else to get you to your knees? And I don't mean that in a in a bad way. Peter didn't learn religion all of a sudden. Oh, now I must bow. Like when I was when I grew up Catholic, you open up the little book they have. They got the kneelers. Wouldn't that be kind of cool if we had some kneelers in here, you know, in the front of the row in front of you? was the kneeler. You pulled, put the kneeler down and you kneel down. And there's a certain part of the of the of the service. They say kneel and then they say sit and then they see they say stand. I mean, that's like that's what we do with our dogs. I'm not I'm just saying. (laughs) Peter didn't read something and go, oh, now's the time that I must bow. It says he fell down. The word fall down, it means to crumble. To crumble, it's like he he crumbled at Jesus. Go away. 
Oh, Lord, you've been so good to me. I'm a sinner. I don't deserve that. For amazement had seized him. Look at what it says in verse nine. For amazement had seized him. Well, what about the conviction? Amazement seized him. The Holy Spirit convicts, convicts us. The word is to convince us that we're not believing in Jesus. That's what the Holy Spirit was convinces us of to get saved. He convinces us that God is good. He convinces us that we've believed the wrong things about him for amazement had seized him and all his companions because of Jesus sermon on sin. Is that what it says? Amazement had seized him and all of his companions because Jesus showed him what a sinner he was. Is that what it says? Amazement had seized him and all of his companions because of the great catch of fish which they had taken. If we could get a hold of the fact that God's goodness, God's generosity brought Peter to his knees. Not preaching holiness. Someone said, you got to preach holiness. So said to me recently, you got to preach more holiness. I said, no, holiness is the fruit of righteousness. When you understand you're the righteousness of God in Christ, it produces holy fruit. Boy, people misunderstand the scripture. And this is why the church is suffering in the world today, because we are not we are not remaining true to the simplicity of the gospel, the simplicity of the gospel. In fact, we know Peter became one of the great apostles, but we forget that this is how he became one. That Jesus showed him such outrageous generosity that amazement seized him. And because of the great catch of fish. And so Jesus said to him and to uh, to, to uh, his brother, Andrew, I think, and to John, sons of James and John, and said, do not fear. For from now on, you'll be catching men from now on, you'll be fishers of men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Now, isn't that discipleship? Isn't that what brought them to become what made them disciples? You better surrender everything. You better you better leave everything behind. Jesus didn't preach that. He just filled the guy's boat with fish. And Peter repented, became a disciple, became an apostle in a moment, in an instant. Why? All because of the goodness of God. All because, well, don't we have to be good so God will be good to us? No, God is good to us because he's good. Well, doesn't God isn't don't we have to be faithful for God to be faithful? No, God is faithful because he's faithful. His character supersedes your character. His character governs him, not your character governing him. Now, religion will tell you that religion will preach that you're no see your character. That's what's going to determine whether God, you know, God shows you his goodness and faithfulness. But 
God's faithfulness is his character. His character is not dependent upon your character. Now, most of us are characters, but I'm saying I'm talking about (laughs) talking about people have actually bought the belief system. I know that I know that people make up their mind on whether they're going to come back to this church right here on what I'm saying right now, because there are some people that actually think, well, this is now you're not preaching the whole counsel of God. Nobody is. You nobody can accomplish that. It would take lifetimes to preach the whole counsel of God, but we're doing our very best. And what it all begins with is in in three verses, I showed you within three or four verses, I showed you the generosity of God. That's his nature. I showed you the result of what happens to a sinful man. He falls to his knees. I showed you worship. The guy's on his knees worshiping Jesus. I showed you repentance. I showed you amazement. I showed you discipleship. I showed you sacrificing all to follow him. And I showed you a guy who later preached the most powerful sermon ever preached after Jesus resurrection. Three thousand people were saved the first day. Five thousand people were saved the second day. Why? All of that comes from one thing. The outrageous generosity of God demonstrated to a sinful man. And man, how many times did Peter screw up after that? Peter screwed up time after time after time after time. And we got to realize something. God does not see God was faithful to Peter even when Peter wasn't faithful. Peter denied the Lord three times, but Jesus did not deny Peter. It's outrageous. And you know what? It's so simple, really this whole thing about the gospel. Do you know that the gospel, there's many verses that sum up the gospel like there's there's one verse sums up the gospel several times in scripture. But how about this one? As well known as this is, it is the most well known scripture. But I'm going to tell you something. It's the least believed scripture in the body of Christ. John 316. It is the most known verse in the whole Bible, and it is the least believed in church. God so loved the world. He loves sinners. He loves the world. He loves every human being that he gave his only begotten son that Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Anybody who adds anything to this verse for your salvation is not any longer preaching the gospel. Now, now listen to me. Now, listen to me. There's a lot more that God says, but there's nothing more that he says to be saved. You say, what about this verse? What about this verse? What about that verse? What about this? What about Hebrews six? What about first Peter six? What about Hebrews 10? There's no first Peter six. What about Hebrews 10? What about (laughs) you say, what about these verses? All of those verses have an application, 
But none of them contradict this, because if any of them contradict this verse, then this verse is no longer scripture. And if this scripture is no longer scripture, then no scripture is. This scripture, though, is self-contained. This scripture contains everything. If you believe in Jesus and he's implying that you believe in the Jesus of the Bible, he's implying you believe in the Jesus that died for your sins and rose from the dead. He's implying that's who he is. That's who he becomes. It is finished on the cross for God. So loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. When he says he gave his only begotten son, Jesus is not talking about he gave Jesus. He's not he's he's not limiting that he gave him just to be a human on the earth. He gave Jesus on the cross. He gave his blood. He gave him as a sacrifice. No greater love has any man than this, that he lay his life down for his friends. So isn't it funny? You know, you you came to life changes because I heard they're deep there. They go deep in the Bible. And here we are in John 316. But you know what? (laughs) Most people don't even preach this. But when it says he gave his only begotten son. That means he gave him to die on the cross and he gave his blood as the sacrifice for us that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world. Verse 17 says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world would be saved through him. So who is this for whoever believes in him. Are there other parts of our Christian life? Absolutely. But until we get this right, nothing else will make sense. We have to get this right. The gospel is simple. It's free. God gives us his son freely and with him gives us all things. And that's why it is his generosity that must become our greatest weapon in spiritual warfare, because if you go back now to Romans chapter eight, Romans chapter eight, verse thirty one, he says, what shall we say to these things? Verse Romans chapter eight, verse thirty one. What shall we say to these things? So now the first thing he says is if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall how shall he not also with him freely give us all things? Watch what he's doing here. He's teaching us spiritual warfare. He says, what shall we say to these things now? What is the sword of the spirit? What is the sword of the spirit? Ephesians six. Verse 16 says, and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, right? The sword of the spirit is the word of God. So he said he tells us here in Romans eight thirty one, what shall we say to these things? What things? The things that he's about to list. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Uh, Who is the one who condemns? Um, Who shall separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord? He's asking these rhetorical questions because this is where Satan gets a foothold in people's lives by getting you to be to accept Satan's accusation. Verse thirty four says or verse thirty three says, who uh, who shall Uh, who shall bring a charge against you, who shall bring an accusation, a charge, uh, uh, a uh, a prosecution or a um, a crime that you've committed, who shall bring a charge that you've committed a crime? God is the one who justifies. So whatever you've done or whatever's been done to you, 
God has justified you so that you do not so that you you do not have to live under the guilt of any charge against you and you don't have to live under the punishment of the thing that you did wrong. Who will bring a charge against you? This is your spiritual warfare. What shall you say to these things? God is the one who justifies. He said, what shall you say to these things? This is what you should say. If God is for me, who can be against me? That's the first thing to say. The second thing to say is he didn't spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not also with him freely give us all things? This is spiritual warfare. What shall you say? Okay, go to verse thirty six. He says, shall um, verse thirty five. Actually, he says, um, who shall separate us from the love of God in Christ, love of Christ? Will tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness. What shall we say to nakedness? Put some clothes on nakedness or peril or the sword. Now, notice what he's saying. He's giving us the list of the things that accuse us, the things that are speaking to us when when you're going through tribulation, a voice says you deserve it. A voice says God's not with you in it. A voice says, how are you going to get out of this? And you have to say, who will separate me from the love of Christ? If God is for me, who can be? This is spiritual warfare. He's not giving us a little poem. If God be for you, who can be against you? He's telling you how to fight. God is for me. Who can be against me? He didn't spare his own son. How shall he not also with him freely give us all things? So when you deal with famine, you don't have anything to eat. You don't have your needs met. How do you deal with that? What shall you say to famine? What shall you say to lack? Here's what I say to lack. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not also with him freely give me all things? You see how the Bible becomes real when you realize it's real and stop reading it as like a poetic book of us. Oh, isn't that great? As encouraging. Hey, you, this is your these are the words you need to use. This is your weapons. These are the things that are at your disposal, the tools at your disposal. What shall we say to these things? We have to open up our mouth and speak to our situation and say, if God is for me, you cannot be against against me. He didn't spare his own son. He delivered him up for us all. Who's going to bring a charge against me? God is the one who justifies me. Who shall condemn me? No, Jesus is interceding for me right now at the right hand of the father and has seated me with him in heavenly places. I guarantee you depression is going to leave when you start talking like that. I guarantee you. I guarantee you fear is going to leave when you start talking like that. What shall we say to these things? We got too many believers that is having too many believers are having these things speak to them. And he doesn't say, what shall these things say to you? He says, what shall you say to these things? For I am persuaded, verse 37, that neither that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor any other thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Nothing can separate you. Nothing you do, nothing anybody else does. This is what it means to live in the grace of God. Verse thirty seven for in all these in all these things 
we are more than conquerors through him that loved us in all these things, in all these things. We're more than conquerors. We are that. But we do our conquering by saying that. <laughs> Remember Revelation 12? I got it. And then I got to get into something real quick for you because I I want you to be caught up with the earlier service. But remember in Revelation 12, verse 11, the accuser accuses us day and night in verse 10. He accuses us day and night. He's been thrown down. He has been thrown down. He has been thrown down. The accuser has been thrown down who accuses us day and night. And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. They overcome by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. Like you have to testify if God before me, you can be against me. Nothing can separate me from the love of God. God didn't spare his own son. This is you testifying. That's how you overcome. And they did not love their life even unto death. He's not saying this is only for people that die as martyrs. He's saying that they didn't love the life they had. The life they had was nothing compared to the life he gave. I don't love the life I had. I love the life he's given me. I love that my life is hidden in Christ, in God, for it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me and the life that I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and delivered him up for us, for us all, for delivered him up for me and you. That's loving, not your life. They did not love their life even to the death. In other words, the life Jesus, the life that Jesus gives is the life that I embrace. And the life that I had, I don't love that, but I do love the life Jesus gives. Now, where I want to catch you up is this. Remember, it's God's generosity is the key to winning spiritual warfare, his generosity. That's why I shared this verse with you the other day, Hebrews 12, 15. Let me spend a little time on this so that we can just again, get caught up, but also really be set free from some stuff. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. Now, people have preached this like you, you better not come short of the grace of God. You're going to you're going to lose your salvation if you come. It's not what he's talking about. He's talking about your emotions. He's talking about how we react when life hits us in a wrong direct from a wrong direction, from a bad place. See to it that and, and really he's talking about how we live this life here on this earth. See to it that no one comes short. Now, I, I get I did the study. I shared this with you last week, but the word short here, it's used. In, it's, it's a different word in some other translations, but the actual word is translated as inferior. So when he says, let no one fall short or may no one live beneath, may no one live inferior to the grace of God, may no one live beneath. No one is supposed to live 
an inferior an inferior life to the grace and generosity of God. God wants you to live a life in his generosity, in his goodness and in his grace. And he said, see to it that no one lives inferior to that. So if instead of instead of me living in the generosity and goodness and grace of God, I'm living in my own works, my own effort. I'm going to pray enough so God will be pleased with me. I'm going to do enough so God will be pleased with me. Now I'm living an inferior life to the grace of God. The grace of God says I'm accepted. I'm loved. I'm in. I'm washed. I'm his. I'm a king and a priest. I'm seated with Christ in heavenly places. That's what the grace that's living in the grace of God. So when I live beneath that, which means I'm living inferior to that, which means I believe in my mind, I have to do something to achieve that grace life. That's an inferior life. There's nothing I have to do to achieve that. All I have to do is believe that. This is what I'm talking about, gang. This is what he's talking about. And now notice what he says happens. So what he's saying is the root, the root to your life, your North Star, the pillar and foundation of your life, the belief system that everything else should revolve around, the epicenter of everything else that you believe should be this, the grace, goodness and generosity of God is the foundation, the cornerstone, the building block of my life. It is how I got saved and it is exactly how God will do everything else in my life. The same way he saved me by his grace, he will heal me by his grace, bless me by his grace, favor me by his grace. All of it is because of his unconditional love towards us that he gave us and and is so generous with us. It's see, sometimes I think we can mistake. Well, I believe God is good. But I don't know how generous he is. See, we don't realize the goodness of God means the generosity of God. He's so generous. And if you just say he's good, but it doesn't factor in his generosity, you're not understanding his goodness. He's so generous that he gave us Jesus and freely everything with him. You can't get more generous than that. But when you believe something less than that, this is what I'm trying to say. When you believe something less than that, three things happen. You develop a root of bitterness. It causes trouble. And it defiles many. Now, when he says many are defiled, it's many areas of our life are defiled and many people are defiled. Well, you know what it's like when you're around somebody who's bitter. It, it's like, ooh, ah, ah, ooh. I got to get away from that. It def- it's defiling me. If someone comes around and says, you know, I know something about I know something about Jenny. And it's really bad. And here it is. Boom, 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 boom. Uh, now I've defiled the person because I'm sharing my experience with how Jenny uh, cussed at me and told a lie about me recently the other day. I forgave her, though. So it's all, we're all good. When some now somebody is carrying somebody's carrying something bitter about what was done to them. And here, the only reason we get bitter is simply we're accepting an inferior belief 
other than the generosity of God. Like, look, here's the thing. If you take something from me, I can be bitter only if I believe in what you did is greater than what God's going to do back for me. Like if you if you take something from me, the Bible says God will restore the years. God will give double for my trouble in Job 42 and God will pay me back sevenfold in Proverbs chapter six. So it's almost like it's almost like I should deliberately leave my door open at night. It's almost like that. Like, go ahead, steal anything you want, because whatever you take from me, God is going to give me double. He's going to restore sevenfold and he's going to restore the years. So so I'm not I'm not encouraging anybody to, to actually do that. The point is, is that when I understand that about God, that he's so generous, see, if I doubt his generosity, if I'm living beneath his generosity, if I'm believing something less than that about God, like I don't believe he'll actually restore the years, then if you cost me a year of my life and some of you have cost me more. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> if you cost me a year of my life for something you've done or said about me or feel about me, I'm just making stuff up. Understand this. But if if you if you cost me a year of my life because of what you've done, I can only be bitter if I have more faith in what you did to me than in the generosity of God. So I believe that God is so generous that if you take a year from me, he'll give me seven back. I believe God is so generous that if if you take everything I have, I'll always end up with more because that's how generous God is. So guess what happens when you take something from me or when you say something about me, it doesn't affect me, even though in the natural it might hurt my feelings. I understand that no weapon formed against me will prosper. So who will condemn me? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? I'm living in that space called spiritual warfare. I'm calling it spiritual warfare, but I'm living in that space where if God be for me, who can be against me? He did not spare his own son, delivering up for us all. How shall he not also with him freely give me all things? That means if you take something from me, he'll freely give me all things back. I don't need you to give it back. I don't need you to take it back. I don't need you to get it right. I don't need you to do anything for my happiness. I don't need you to do anything to complete my life because God's so generous. Anything anybody's ever done to me, God will make up for it because I pray enough. No, because I do enough. No, because I'm a preacher. No. None of those reasons. He will do it for one reason, because that's who he is. And that's how generous he is. And the only thing, the only thing that I need to possess in order to activate that generosity is trust or faith, whatever you want to call it. It's simply I believe in his generosity. That's I believe in his grace. I believe his generosity is more than enough to make up for whatever I whatever I didn't get in my upbringing, whatever I didn't get in my early years as a Christian, whatever mistakes I made as a young Christian, as a young pastor, whatever mistakes I've made, 
as an older Christian, an older pastor, whatever mistakes you've made, whatever mistakes I've made, you see, they don't have they don't carry any weight with me. Nothing you do and nothing I do carries any weight with me because God is more generous than whatever has been taken from me by my choices, by my bad decisions, by something somebody did to me. Like God is bigger than that. His generosity is greater than that. And see, when you when you when you build your life upon that belief system, you will never be bitter. If you're bitter, then if you're bitter, it's evidence that you believe more in what somebody did to you than in what God can do for you. See, bitterness is an, it's the evidence of something. It's not oh, you're bitter, so you should get rid of the bitterness. No. If we're bitter, it's at the evidence that we are believing something less than the grace and goodness and generosity of God. So when there's any reason to be mad, offended, angry, bitter, any reason what outweighs it all is God's generosity. His generosity. He's going to make it up to me and not sarcastically. Don't worry what you did to me. God will make it up to me somehow. No, 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 no. I'm not doing you a favor by refusing to be bitter. I'm doing myself a favor. Bitterness comes from a small view of God's generosity. Bitterness comes from the expectation of people to make you happy or for what people do to make you unhappy. Like <clears throat> if you give people that power to make you happy or unhappy, then you have fallen short of the grace of God. In other words, you're believing more in what they do than in the generosity of God and what he'll do for you. So I, I have I give myself no permission to um, to to let anybody to 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 give anybody the power to make me happy or unhappy. I don't give myself permission and I don't give you permission. Like I can't I refuse to allow myself to make me unhappy because if I looked at my flaws, I could become unhappy if I focus on that. I, I'm aware of my flaws, but I don't focus on it. I focus on his goodness and his generosity and what God has done rather than what I've done. OK, but you have to make sure not to give yourself permission anymore and don't give anybody else permission. Like you did that to me and that makes me unhappy. Or if you do this for me, that'll make me happy. That's giving people the power to determine your happiness rather than living in the grace of God where God will make you happy. Bitterness comes from believing that other people could have prevented a negative outcome in your life. When you when you believe like I, I'll be bitter at you if I think you could have prevented this, you could have prevented this. Now, people could prevent what they do, but only you are in control of how you respond. Now, when your faith is in the generosity of God, you can bite me, you can stab me, you can kick me, you can hit me, you can punch me, you can do all those things to me. But none of them will outdo God's healing. I might feel them for a moment, 
But I believe that God's so generous, he will heal me of your of the pain you brought me. Or he'll heal me of the pain that I perceived that you brought me, because sometimes we we sometimes it's not somebody that brought you pain. It's just you perceive that it came from them. It really came from some inner wound inside of you. And it all goes away when you live in the goodness and generosity of God. And bitterness comes when we believe in people more than God. See, like. If I'm sitting with you at at dinner or in the lobby, like. I believe you, I trust that you're what you're going to do, what you say, but. I'm my job, my response, my my faith is not in you. And when I put my faith in you. Like if you come through for me, then my faith isn't in God. What we need to do is we need to learn how to put our faith completely in God, how to love people, but trust God. So my responsibility is not to make sure you treat me a certain way or to make sure that I treat you a certain way. My, My responsibility is to trust God and do the best I can in his love to love you with his love for me. That's my responsibility. Your, your responsibility should be the same thing. Like, don't be mad if I disappoint you because I'm wired to disappoint you. And you're wired to disappoint me. In other words, we're wired as human beings. But God is not wired as a human being, so he will never disappoint. So when I put my so when you disappoint me, it's because I put my faith in you. That's why my emotions are now deflated because of something you did or didn't do for me. That all goes away when my faith is in God, never disappointing me. And my knowing you're going to let me down sometimes. I'm going to let you down sometimes because we're humans. But we got to give each other room. We got to give ourselves and everybody else in our life room to be themselves. And if that means they let you down, don't hold it against them because God's generosity will lift you up and will let you up when somebody else lets you down. God's generosity will let you up. Hey, everybody. Thanks so much for listening to the Gregory Dickow podcast today. If this podcast has encouraged or inspired you in any way, we'd love for you to share it with a friend, a family member or someone you know who would benefit from these messages. And make sure to subscribe if you haven't already so you never miss an episode.